When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Manchester's indie rock and roll station, XS Manchester. The XS Manchester Long Player, an iconic album in full with Jim Salverson. XS Manchester. You're right, how you doing? I'm Jim, and this is the XS Long Player. Classic albums talked through with the people who made them. If you've been enjoying this podcast series so far, please do make sure you've subscribed because there's loads more episodes to come, as well as a load of episodes in the bank, actually, that you can listen to. Loads of classic albums talked about, probably your favourites already done or still to come. So make sure you've subscribed or followed, and please take the time to leave a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts to tell me what you make of these shows, which ones were your favourites, and who you'd like me to talk to in the future. But today, I am talking to Billy from the Subways about their debut album, Young for Eternity, which has just ticked over 25 years on the planet. As you'll hear me talking about with Billy, they celebrated those 25 years with a whole load of gigs throughout the UK, playing the album in full. And now their attention turns to brand new music with a new album coming next year. But this conversation is all about the very start of the band, how they got their break, how they recorded music and the making of this classic album. One of the things I hope comes across in this chat I had with Billy is how enthusiastic he is as an individual. And not only does that come across in the music from the band, I think it comes across in every time he talks about the music he makes as well. You can almost see the fire in his belly lighting up as he discusses the band and the music they're making and what they're going to do in the future as well. If you want to listen to Subway's Young for Eternity, before you get stuck into this conversation, please do hit pause. I've put a link to the album in Spotify in the podcast description, as well as any other links you might need from this episode, as well as any other links you might need from this episode. So go and check it out there, whilst I get stuck into my conversation with Billy Lunn from the Subway, talking about their debut album, Young for Eternity. How you doing, Billy? I'm good. How are you, Jim? Yeah, really good. Delighted to talk to you about this album, which I can't quite believe is 16 years old. I'm sure it's yeah. probably more of a shock to you that it's 16 <laughs> years old. Um, we're going to yeah, go right constantly. the way. We're going to go right the way back to 2005, the start of this conversation. Maybe even a little bit earlier, actually, because the album came out in 2005. I want to go and start off a few years before that, the kind of genesis of the band when you got together with the guys and you were playing these Nirvana and Green Day songs. Is that where you saw yourselves when you started out? Did you think we're going to be the Welling Garden version of Green Day? <laughs> I don't know. Actually, I guess so, because we initially called ourselves Platypus after the song Platypus I Hate You off the Nimrod record. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, and then we changed it to the subways when we started playing in London. But um, 
I think really we just wanted to be in a band. I mean, initially we started the band because we wanted to be in the rock contest at the Harlow Square, which a lot of our school friends were joining. They were like forming bands and joining this competition. And they were like, oh, yeah, you know, you just like get on stage and there are actually like people there watching you and you get to play music. And I'm like, you're going to have to explain to me what the Harlow Square is. Yeah, of course. Well, the Harlow Square was, unfortunately, it's a pile of rubble now, um, much to my heartbreak, my continual heartbreak. (laughs) But it used to be the creative hub of Hearts and Essex. And so many legends have passed through there. Oasis, Blur, probably even Green Day. I wouldn't put it past them. As well as that, they function as a a community centre. So a few friends and I would turn up and watch these bands. And then, you know, a short time afterwards, we found ourselves playing on on stage, you know, playing our own songs mixed in with a bunch of, like you said, Nirvana and Green Day covers. But it wasn't just like a venue. It was it was like a place where you went to socialize, where you could hang out, where you could eat your lunch on a lunch break or you could go for a, a drink or you could go for a dance, you know, because they had R&B nights and they had uh, hardcore nights, they had garage nights and all that kind of stuff. So we basically formed all our friendship groups around the Harlow Square Um, so when we were in school we were like we want to play at the square we want to play on that stage so we formed the band and we started playing Nirvana and Green Day songs what was me and Josh at school initially and I was dating Charlotte at the time and I was like why don't you when you finish school come over to our school we'll book a room and we'll just play together and and you know we'll work something out um and that happened like almost every day (laughs) you know we were doing it almost every day after Mm. school and for the last couple of years at school I was just obsessed with playing music or playing rock and roll and being in the rock and roll band so yeah we we formed the band we went on stage and played this gig at the rock contest at the harlow square and it was awful (laughs) like (laughs) i can remember being really traumatized by it like how bad it was i was like i can't believe it's like this you know but i came off stage and rather than saying i'm never going to do that again i was like we're going to do that again but we're going to be good next time you know and so we refined our set list we learned how to tune our guitars and we learned how to sound check and all that sort of stuff but the square was really fundamental in sort of teaching us how to do that as well that's that's basically the harlow square and the formation of the band and and how we came to be i mean those early days were interesting as well you've got your harlow square fans obviously the people watching you there but your appeal I guess emanated out from that because of quite an unusual approach you had to recording and releasing music. You were recording your own stuff, albeit on a fairly basic setup, and that was quite unusual in 2005. It's kind of the norm now, I guess. And then you were just throwing these demos up on your website, these kind of rough and ready things. Do you think that helped you grow? And also, did that help you make kind of informed decisions about what music worked? Because you could gauge reaction from this kind of early the stuff that was very much at the early stages of its development definitely when we started the band I was like you know I think I used to be in a lot of forums like I was a big fan of the Von Bondis and a big fan of the Vines and I'd sort of go onto their forums and and comment and just be like oh I love the new song and I can't wait for them to come to London and that kind of stuff so I knew how important forums were to sort of building a fan base and you know getting people coming to shows but at the same time like just building a really lovely community mm. of people who love the band and as well as liking our band like shared the music that they were also into like other bands that they would let us know we should check out or go and see or maybe ask for a support slot or something so yeah we started out there and I would record in my parents council house I I would have like the tiny little um, eight track on the kitchen table it's this tiny little box kitchen and we'd sort of feed the leads through into the 
into the living room and when my mum and dad were out at work during the day we'd record like drums and then bass and guitars and yeah pr- like you say pretty much everyone's doing that at the moment like home mm. recording but it's kind of strange because the the studio I have now is in a in a space which once upon a time was much too expensive for us to use mm. the reason why I started home recording in the first place was because we looked at this place called Farm Factory and we didn't have 200 pounds to spend on three days of recording and not knowing whether it was going to be to our liking or not so I said rather than spending 200 pounds on just like one set of three songs why don't we spend 200 pounds on a piece of recording equipment some semi-good microphones and some leads and mm. um, we'll teach ourselves how to do it well I'll teach myself how to do it so yeah I ended up recording a lot of the stuff I mean I was writing three or four songs a week and we were throwing three or four songs a week away just a lot of creativity but a lot of throwing away going on so it was a good idea just to start recording everything that we wrote so we weren't throwing away ideas that we thought at a later stage were really good and then you know all of a sudden we'd forgotten what the song was so we just accumulate all these demos eventually we came up with like seven demos each of three or four songs on self-produced self-burnt you know we'd burn the cds en masse and write the subways and the track titles on and we got our mum and dad involved even some of the demos that a lot of fans have got now they have my my mum's handwriting on them I'm like oh that's my mum's handwriting (laughs) and yeah so we'd upload them onto our website and it was good because we got to gauge what people thought of them but at the same time it definitely taught me that if you don't think something's ready don't put it up don't don't release it because I I remember getting in a conversation with someone on the forum and they're like I really don't like this and I was like well actually it's not fully formed and they're like well why have you put it up then and I'm like that's a really good point (laughs) Mm. why did I you know you know at that time it was like content over quality it's just like let's try and get as many songs as we can recorded and uploaded and so everyone knows all the words but at the same time we're kind of uploading these half thought through ideas so that's when I started to really refine how we were writing how we were recording and how we were uploading our stuff onto the internet and that's a real skill you know that's not something that I think occurs to you initially when you're in kind of the whirlwind of creativity and excitement of a new song and all that sort of stuff but It's something I very much take into account when I'm producing and when I'm writing, you know, I don't send Charlotte any ideas until I'm like, actually, this is a really good idea because it's just, it's going to be a waste of her time formulating bass lines Mm. and backing vocals to a song that's probably going to come to nothing. And, you know, it taught me as well that when we were sending our demos out to agents and promoters in London, and that's where we really started to grow the band is that we weren't just playing at the Harlow Square anymore. We weren't just playing in Wedding Garden City. We were like, no, we need to go to places where we don't know people, where our friends sure. um, can't necessarily get there. So we threw ourselves into playing uh, venues in London. So I remember we played the Buffalo Bar in Highbury Islington, which was underneath the famous Cock Pub, which is immediately to the right as you come out of Highbury and Islington Station. But it's no longer there. It was one of the best venues in London. Absolutely sublime. You sort of go down these rickety stairs and then all of a sudden it's just like dark red maroon colored room with all this weird lighting in this tiny stage in the corner but some of the best gigs we've ever played or watched there have taken place at the buffalo bar in high Islington. but we played our first ever gig there and i remember the sound engineer running up to the stage and shaking the microphone and going please please let me be your manager and he's still our manager now so <laughs> our first london gig we met our manager but yeah, you know, it was um, it was a big learning curve and it definitely shaped the, the way that we ended up kind of refining our process. But at the same time, that initial 
urgency to write and let people know about what we're doing mm. like via a forum or by the website the or... excitement or to get it out there i guess is that it's like how exactly. you balance that yeah uh, well it's it's tough because we are a group of really enthusiastic people and it's not cool <laughs> you know we love what we do we love being in this band we love writing songs we definitely love being on stage i mean we live for getting on stage and and rocking out and sweating and having a great time and making people smile and that's not necessarily seen as cool by many but it's something that we actually think is quite cool and that's always stayed with us you know the enthusiasm to create the enthusiasm to get on that stage the enthusiasm to still talk to our fans you know we Hmm. um regularly use instagram twitter facebook or whatever new platform that happens to be next week as a way to kind of communicate with our fans and and get to know them because they're a very important part of our journey we think i think the enthusiasm of you in the subways is one of the most endearing elements i guess one of the reasons that i think you are a fantastic band it's that energy that you bring to the occasion and talking about those demos though going back to yourself recording it was one of those that i guess arguably kind of changed it all when you were invited to play the unsigned band stage in glastonbury which was back in 2004 so a year before the album was released I'm sure all bands will be familiar with that feeling of sending off a demo tape or a CD or an MP3 into a competition like that. And unfortunately, not many bands will be familiar with getting that call, telling them that they're going to be stepping onto the stage at Glastonbury. Do you remember that phone call and what that felt like? Yeah, I do. I mean, I even remember why we entered in the first place. You know, I was recording one of my mate's bands and we were sat in the kitchen and we'd finished recording and I was kind of finishing up mixing and I was about to burn the the original CD from which I'd burn all the other copies. And I was like, oh, where, where do you plan on sending this CD, guys? Because, you know, we've got this big book full of London promoters that you can sort of steal some names off if you like. And they said, yeah, that'd be amazing. But primarily we want to send it off to Michael Evis. He's running this Glastonbury competition. And we think that, you know, these songs that we've recorded have got a good shot. And I thought, ah, yeah, that's true. But in the back of my head, I was like, we kind of got a bunch of good songs as well. Why don't we send off a demo? And we were just about to send off a batch of 30 CDs to some London promoters for another huge run of gigs over a couple of months. Because we sort of did these runs of gigs over two or three months. And then we'd stop and do a bunch of more writing, bunch more recording, and then send them out and then do another two or three months of of Uh, playing gigs around when we were working or when Charlotte was studying and um, so I you know uh, as I was collecting these 30 CDs I was about to send off to London I piled onto this one CD three of our best songs which included 1am I can't actually remember the other two songs I think Rock and Roll Queen might even have been on it yeah so it just went off with all the other CDs I'd sent off and a couple of weeks later I'd totally forgotten about it but I got this phone call from a number I didn't know on my mobile I was like oh that's that's interesting. Hello. And it was a guy called Wes White. And it was like, I've just got your CD through the post. I put it on the stereo and it's absolutely amazing. I'm, I'm with the Glastonbury Unsigned competition and we really like for you to come and play Michael Levis's Working Men's Club in Pilton. And I was like, oh, ace, great. Another gig. Fantastic. <laughs> so, you know, in my head, it was just another gig. Yeah. But we sort of moseyed on and uh, eventually played the two or three songs that they allowed us to play for the competition Uh, about halfway through the third song we just decided to trash everything (laughs) and as we're packing everything up Michael Evers himself walks over to me and goes you got the gig well done wow (laughs) and then later on because everything has to be official he called us up 
and was like, yep, I can officially offer you the other stage at Glastonbury Festival 2004. And we just like, because up to that point, we we're like, yeah, he'd said he was giving it to us, but we don't quite know mm. if he was hammered or not. But no, he definitely gave us the gig and uh, we kind of lost, lost our minds a little bit. And we were like, yeah, we're, we're going to play uh, Glastonbury Festival. But I mean, even by that time, we were playing sellout shows in London because mm. um, we started to build this really kind of fervent, passionate loving community you know people would travel from all over the country to come see us play at the bull and gate in kentish town or wherever so um it was it was kind of just like oh we get to you know we kind of we're not playing in london this time we're playing in the west country yeah. so let's go excellent everyone in a van it was already starting to happen yeah let's talk about the album itself let's get stuck into this so i noticed when i was doing a bit of research on young for eternity that ian Brody was the producer as in ian Brody from the lightning seeds I was surprised by that. I don't think I'd knew, known that previously. Was that your call? Was that the label's call? Because for me, Ian Brody as a artist, and I don't know much about his work as a producer, if I'm honest, but it doesn't it doesn't scream to me punk rock or garage rock. Yeah, yeah. It's um, we we were talking with a bunch of producers, and I I've always been a huge fan of Supergrass. So we were talking to a bunch of people who were involved with Supergrass's uh, production and engineering and mixing. And we met up with them and, and they were great. They were absolutely great. But our A&R guy, Neil Ridley, he got hold of Ian Brody and he was like, look, Ian really wants to do this album. Just give him a shot. Have some dinner with him and see how, how you like him. And we all just like sat down at this kind of uh, this pizza place in Welling Garden City. And, um, and we just got on famously. It was just great. And we were like, yeah, you know, we can I, I can see us lasting the entirety of the recording process with this guy, mm. <laughs> you know, because Josh and I were really passionate about ideas. And sometimes we would come to blows <laughs> on certain creative ideas of the way, you know, uh, a mix should be. And Charlotte was pretty easy about everything. But we thought that Ian would deal with our situation really, really well. And we definitely knew that things were going to work out after we recorded our first two tracks in 2004 i think it was november or december 2004 we recorded oh yeah and rock and roll queen and as soon as we got the mixes through from that we were like oh yeah this is the guy <laughs> <laughs> this, this is the one who's gonna do our record because it was just like blistering and he got it and also like you know ian's a pop song writer but i could i could see that he could see that i was deep down like a pop songwriter yeah. um i grew up on motown music like you know the first song i fell in love with and the song that made me fall in love with not just music but also falling in love with the idea of love was smoky uh, smoky robinson's the tracks of my tears and ever since then i've been in love with motown music like the conciseness of a, of a pop track you know the way a, a structure can completely shift the way you think about a pop song so I got into, you know, Carpenters, ABBA, all that sort of stuff, as well as Mark Boland, Dave Bowie and all the punk bands we started listening to when we were hanging out at the square and all the metal bands and the rock bands there. So I think Ian saw in us like, yeah, we are a really passionate, really fast moving, frenetic three piece when we're on stage. But at the same time, there's something there with the songs that I think you can hear in songs like Mary, where there's there's a melody, there's like a, a love song happening there. And it's not just about us bashing something out or, mm. or sort of bashing out a, a cool riff. Like there's there's something kind of very pop there. So he wanted to, I think he wanted to meet those two elements, the rock and the pop, nicely in the middle. And I'm a huge fan of um, Nevermind by Nirvana. And I remember Kurt Cobain saying in an interview about that record, you know, there are so many pop elements to this album that we really wanted to ramp up the rock element of it. 
And I was like, that's kind of, that's exactly how I feel about my music. A lot of it is written on the acoustic guitar and then it's taken to the band and we build the song from there. Like I don't ever start with us just going, right, here are the chords, let's all pile in. Yeah. Like it's very, it's, it's quite, it's actually quite meticulous, even though it sounds simple. Mm. So um, I think Ian got that. And I could see that in his own songwriting, in his own production with the stuff that he did with the choral and uh, Zootons. But also it's something that, he just kind of saw in us at the same time. It's interesting you mentioned the creative tensions between yourself and Josh particularly, because you've always seemed like a really super knit group, band of brothers, even girlfriends slash ex-girlfriends in there as well. Yeah. Did, did that make the experience, the fact you were mates that had grown up and you had these relationships, did that make the recording experience more intense? Is it more difficult to kind of navigate your way through that I imagine very stressful process when you have those relationships or does that make it easier? A bit of both. I mean, the dynamic is obviously really different because we're all so intensely related. You know, Charlotte and I at the time were going out and, you know, we really wanted to get married and Josh and I had spent our entire life growing up together. And we, as well as being like best friends, we were also like biggest enemies as mm. you are with your siblings. So when we formed the band, it was kind of like, this is either going to see us through quite nicely or it's going to tear us apart very, very quickly. <laughs> and there were moments when, you know, I'm a control freak. You know, I'm the songwriter in the band. I'm the singer in the band. And I would record and mix our demo. So I had a lot of creative control over the process. That was a lot of responsibility as well as being, you know, something that I treasured. So there were times when Josh would say something and because of the, nature of our relationship as siblings I would take that in the worst possible way of like you're just trying to push my buttons aren't you no 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 <laughs> I'm just saying this because I think the song will benefit no you're saying this because you want to push my buttons because you're the young, younger brother you know I'm the older brother and you want to try and exercise some power over me or something obviously I didn't articulate it in that way but yeah that you know there were there were tensions and I think because like this is a really important thing making a record you know there's a lot at stake here and also we we love these songs and we want to go out and tour these songs and that's really really important to us so you know if you if you have like a grievance it has to be aired and it has to it has to be fair and sometimes it wasn't always fair but at the same time because we were so closely related because we're so connected and tuned in and you know that's something that really helps us when we play live we can read each other so easily there's kind of a an electricity there that you can't really account for if it's just a friend with whom you formed a band you know there was this kind of unspoken weird telekinetic thing happening between the three of us whenever something would happen on stage and that's kind of what got us through recording the album when there were heightened tensions when we did kind of doubt ourselves or the song or the direction it was going in sometimes we would be at odds with Ian and it was the first time we'd ever really experienced that creatively because you know it was just us recording our demos and our manager was always just like I believe in you you do what you want to do and so you know it's the first time we'd ever encountered someone who was like this song isn't working this way you need to do it this way and that was that was only something that I really learned from after the fact once you're outside the chaos of the creative endeavor of making a record you know because you're so keyed in to getting the record done and making sure it's the best it can possibly be and once you're listening through to the mixes you're like yeah Ian was so right that's the job of a producer isn't it to challenge you and to push you and to make you question what you're doing yeah absolutely 
And now I realise that. And I definitely realised that by the time we went into the studio in LA to record with Butch Vig, not just because we were in LA or working with Butch Vig, but just because I'd learned from that process with Ian. But also I was a little bit older, you know, by the time we recorded All or Nothing, I was 22, 23. And I was only 18 or 19 when we recorded Young Fraternity. So, you know, a lot of my friends were going to university and partying and, you know, forming sort of social connections there and making the mistakes at university. And I was like, thrust into a recording studio and all my mistakes would be there on tape for everyone to hear so it was kind of like a a big responsibility meets an immense amount of naivety Mm. (laughs) Um, but it's something I listen back to on the album and I'm like do you know what that's really important that it's there because it speaks for itself it speaks of us at a certain time this record is like a true raw representation of who we were then and who we kind of still are now I'm going to ask you to pick a couple of moments off this album in a minute, Billy. So they can be tracks you love or tracks that mean a lot or tracks that spark memories. Completely up to you, but I'm going to get you to pick a couple. But before we do that, I want to read you a review that I found from The Enemy when the album first came out. Yes. Um, And it says, you might even remember this, I don't know. The review goes, it often sounds more like... Can I just... Sorry, go on. does Does it mention the word schizophrenic? No, I don't think so. The quotation. Okay, because that's something I do remember from that review. Go okay, ahead, sorry. <laughs> we'll, we'll come back to that in a minute then. Um, okay. So the, it goes, it often sounds more like ACDC than anyone could have wanted, but at other times, like on Somewhere, everything goes a bit Jesus and Mary chained by the way of Foo Fighters, which is highly unexpected, but nonetheless pretty good. It's the type of dark summary rock hit that hints at what's to come from the future, whilst the rest of the album, which is more excitable and adolescent, shows the band's tender age and their obvious lust for life and for each other. That's some pretty positive words from the enemy back in the noughties because they didn't do positivity lightly. They were kind of a bit snipey and a bit negative yeah. in their reviews at the time. Yeah. Did you pay attention it, it, to that kind of thing when it came out? Definitely. I mean, I, I can remember going to college. I was taking a BTEC in uh, creative arts. And, you know, after I left school, I just wanted to, you know, I just wanted to make noise and paint and draw and and dance and act so um i went and did that for two years and every single week every single week on the wednesday morning before i go to class i'd pick up the enemy and that was a big thing for me so when they said something like that in the enemy obviously it's like oh my god <laughs> you know it's really important because i remember opening the enemy and reading I, I would go straight for the terrible reviews because they were always hilarious <laughs> like the enemy never held back like they, until they it's would... your album i guess and it's less fun oh, totally. and i was like Phew, we're not one of those okay great um <laughs> but they they would even even with the good reviews they'd find something some little some little dig some little twist that they yeah. would make and I, I think that's what made it such like intriguing sensational stuff to read and i just loved it but yeah when they said stuff like that i was like yes yes you get it you absolutely get it you get us and that's so validating to hear, especially with the ACDC stuff, because ACDC were the first band Josh and I ever went to see live. Like my dad took us to see ACDC at Wembley Arena. And after that gig, my ears never stopped ringing. And that was a constant reminder of that gig, that moment, the importance of that moment, the power of that moment. And because of that, I, to this day, my main guitar is a Gibson SG because of Angus okay. Young, because I remember seeing Angus Young on stage and I was like, that is what I want to do when I grow up. And I was like, I don't know, seven, eight, nine years old. And I already knew that this is what I wanted to do. So when they, they kind of invoke ACDC, but then Jesus and Mary Chain, you know, there are a lot of psychedelic moments on this record that I really wanted to emphasize and have in there. 
And I had to fight for those moments, you know, because we, we were writing a lot of pop songs, a lot of um, pop rock songs, a lot of garage rock songs. And I was like, no, they, these, these songs are kind of, I was already leaning into the second record when we were, when we were starting the first record. Like right. we had this song list ready for the first record. And I was constantly talking about making the second record whilst we were making Young Fraternity because I already knew the journey I wanted to make after this album. And that's just how quick and enthusiastic my thinking was. You know, it's just like, yes, yeah, so we've made this, but now we need to make this or I want to make this. Or we should make this and for this reason. So when someone like a journalist at the NME can see that, and can kind of gauge that intent. It not only means, ah, oh, that's amazing. They've been really kind in that they've stepped back and gone, we can see what they're trying to do here, but also that they've given you the time because yeah. it's really, it's journalism at that time, they didn't give you much time. You know, you were either a hit or you weren't a hit. And I think it was just great to read that they could see potential, especially given our age. Mm. But yeah, I remember from that review, the word schizophrenic appearing. And I really took issue with that word because I was like, well, what does that mean? Does that mean that we don't have a niche? Hmm. And I also, I think the word niche was also mentioned. And I was like, I kind of took issue with that because I was like, I don't want a niche. You know, I'm a songwriter. I'm not here to fulfill people's expectations. Yeah, you know, I'm going to write pop rock songs, but I'm going to write them because I love playing them and I love hearing them. And at the same time, if I'm going to make a psychedelic pop number or like a, I don't know, like a, a, a very heavy kind of deftonesy riff, then I w- I'm going to do that. But at the same time, they kind of, in the NME review, made allowances for that. And it's really funny now because a lot of albums are praised for being kind of schizophrenic, if you know what I mean. Yeah. I mean, by the word schizophrenic, I think what they're meaning is that, that it's not parochially of a specific genre, that maybe there's a pop song, then there's a rock song, then there's mm. a folk song. And now that's seen as something that artists kind of should be able to have, like the ability to hot foot it from one thing to another because it shows a range, but also like a diversity of thinking. And that's really what I wanted to go for with this record. And I, I still can't believe when I listened to it that I had the goal to make this kind of album, to go, do you know what? Everyone's really expecting us to pile in with Rock and Roll Queen. Let's start the album with an acoustic guitar. Mm. <laughs> Let's freak them out a little bit. Because we never played acoustic guitar when we were playing rock gigs in London. And so I was like, this is how the songs start. I write them on acoustic guitar. So let's start the album with an acoustic guitar. Um, let's show them a part of the subways that no one's really going to expect, but actually something that's a big part of us. Pick a couple of tunes off this album that you can remember recording or remember writing or that sparks special memories for you, Billy. What would you like to go for? Um, so I can remember waking up in the morning and gearing up for recording the song I want to hear what you've got to say and I kind of had an idea that I wanted it to be the first track on the record because as I say I, I knew that I wanted to record the intro on an acoustic guitar and this song initially began as the b-side for our very first single one in which was released on transgressive records in 2004 when we re-recorded it with Ian uh, in Liverpool for Young Fraternity I really wanted to add a few more elements that were heavily influenced by virtue of our merely being in Liverpool because right. you know being in the city of Liverpool, having not really travelled all that much as a, you know, uh, around the UK anyway, as a kid, being in Liverpool, the birthplace of some of our favourite bands, and walking down those streets and going to those bars and all that kind of stuff, it really fed the feeling with which we went into the studio every single morning. So the Stab Guitars followed me listening to the Lars on a constant loop whilst I was staying in the apartment in Liverpool I also came up with the first line of the intro another day is here and I'm still alive 
after I was waking up in the morning. And the original version on the Transgressive Records single for 1AM didn't have that line. I woke up and I was like, this line has to start the album. It has to start this song, but it also has to start this album. And I can just remember turning to Charlotte, having just woken up and gone, I think I'm going to start the album with this line. Tell me if you like it. Another day is here and I am still alive. And she was like, I love it. I love it. And every time we're on stage and I start the guitar part for I want to hear what you've got to say, people just scream at me the line, another day is here and I am still alive, like with so much passion that I'm so glad that that line came to me when I was waking up in the morning. And I walked into the studio and I was like, Ian, I've got the first line of this song. It's not what I've originally written down for you. It's something else. Um, and that was a really big moment for me and a really big moment for the record, I think. Pick me another one. Go on, go for another track. Okay. Um, right. Mary, which is my favourite song on the album. So I wrote this as I wrote all of this album when I was working as a linen porter in a hotel a few towns uh, away from where I grew up. I used to wake up really early in the morning, catch the bus, listen to tunes on the way there, you know, do my job. And uh, the job itself consisted of collecting all the dirty linen from all the hotel rooms, packing it up, sending it off to be washed, then distributing the clean linen throughout all the rooms across the hotel. So it was basically just me walking around on my own, singing these ideas that I was coming up with in my head, as well as all these songs that I was falling in love with at the time. I really loved it, even though it was like kind of crappy, but there was coffee. I could have a smoke when I wanted to. I used to smoke back then. It gave me loads, loads of times to think about the song ideas I was coming up with on a day-to-day basis. So one day I got on the bus home from this job. I got through the door and I saw my mum on the sofa looking really dejected and sad. So um, I thought, okay, uh, before she notices I'm back, I'm going to pop upstairs. I'm going to finish this idea that I've got on the guitar and I'm going to take it downstairs to her and I'm going to play it and I'm going to try and cheer her up. And I finished it off in one go, came downstairs, played it for mum and it cheered her up and it ended up being the song Mary. And I still listen to it now and I think, God, how did I, how did I come up with that? (laughs) You know, because I think it's kind of this weird fusion of Oasis, Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, the Ramones, Nirvana. Mm. They've all got some part to play in this song. They've all been cobbled together. And there's a bit of Blondie in there as well. And uh, I love my influences and I'm unafraid to show my influences on my Mm -hmm. songwriting. So, yeah, it's a really jolly little number, a nice little triplet. uh, And it always always seems to make people smile when we play it live. You mentioned it's one of your favourite songs on the album. I don't think it was a single, if I remember rightly. I think they were Rock rock and Roll Queen, Oh Yeah, No Goodbyes With You. Were they the four singles? That's it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do you feel as it's your favorite song is it like you want to push it to the front you want it to be a single or does the logic in your brain take over and go no look rock and roll queen is the one that's the one that's going to fly for us yeah when it comes to singles picking singles it's something that is it's it's a reconcile of all these various factors that are constantly swirling around you because you know even now as i'm sort of finishing up the mastering process of our fifth album i'm having calls from a manager going right the plan is this song is first single, this song is second single. And then I'll get a, a WhatsApp message from someone at the record label going, I'm, your manager said this, but I really love this song. Let's push for this song. And then I've got band members going, Billy, this is <laughs> a great song. Don't let them not have this as a single. And it's a weird thing because I'm 
I'm, I've never been a business-minded person. The idea of markets, speculation, accumulation, financial gain, all that stuff is just like gross. And I want to mm. shake it off. And I wish I didn't have to deal with it. We all have to deal with it, but I wish I didn't have to deal with it. All I want to do is wake up, write, play music, make people smile, have a great time. Yeah. You know, when it comes to picking something that is going to reconcile all these various requests from a number of directions, it's really just about okay, what are they looking for from this album? In a way, I've already fulfilled what I want from this album by writing it, recording it, having it mixed, having it mastered, and just having it released. So if someone thinks it will be a good idea to have this single rather than my favourite single released as a, as a song, I can kind of deal with that because I know that it, it's, it's taken into account all these various things of which I have no interest yeah. or not even like the brain, the way of thinking to kind of come to terms with that. So the fact that Mary was never released as a single is something I can totally live with. And it's always been, it's always been a fondness of mine to love album tracks. You know, some of my favorite tracks by some of my favorite bands are ones that weren't picked, weren't picked for singles. Mm. They're often ones that a lot of people would be like, I can't believe you like this song. Like it's, it's one of the worst songs in the album. I'm like, yeah, I could, a part of me likes it because of that, <laughs> you know, because like the, the odd one out. Yeah, exactly. You know, I've, I'm, I, I like siding with the underdog. I remember we were touring America and um, our pro- project manager over there, Brent, who worked for Warners, we, he loved uh, What's the Story Morning Glory. And I, I obviously grew up with that record and I love it too. But he was like, every time it got to Hey Now, I'd be like, oh, this song's so crap. I hate this song. I mean, I love this song. This song's so great. It's so it's so lush and the solo i think the solo is the best part one of the best parts of the album i don't think you can really call anything on that album the best part it's all fucking excellent so you know when some when a song like mary which is my favorite song and it has the biggest emotional attachment for me given like the origins of the song and all that i still get to play it live you know i still get to sing it i still it's still on the album and i get overall say of what actually appears on the album anyway because you know it's (laughs) because <laughs> i'm a control freak um <laughs> so you know if a record label's like it's not going to be a single i'm like well what i like doesn't necessarily conform with what the demands are in the quote unquote market of sure. which i have no interest so um yeah you recently went back to this album with a tour playing it in full the tour's finished now i think we're talking in end of october 2021 is it all wrapped up yeah. now the young fraternity tour it is. Thank heavens. <laughs> we started it. We started it in March 2020. Oh, wow. um, and yeah, we played three shows. Our last show of 2020 was at Manchester Academy. I was just there the other day, actually, doing an interview for um, uh, for a friend who's who's got this fantastic documentary coming out. Um, but yeah, I'd sort of walked in and I was like, yeah, the last time I was in here, everyone was in a panic. <laughs> you know, yeah. Everyone was like, we are going home. There's a pandemic. Half the crowd haven't turned up because they're so scared. Should we be going on stage? You know, we're all, yeah. we, we don't know what's happening. And the day after was when the pandemic was officially declared and a lockdown was, was incoming. So we're kind of glad that we decided that that was the last show and we were heading, packing up and going home. But yeah, uh, so in the intervening time, we finished our fifth album. Josh, my brother, left the band to pursue his own musical career. Uh, We've got a new drummer called Camille Phillips, who's absolutely amazing. Um, We saw her playing with uh, the all-female cover band, 
tribute bands, sorry, um, the Ramonas, and they they actually write their own material as well. So they do tours of like half shows of Ramones songs and half shows of Ramonas songs. Saw her play and we're just like, look, we think you're amazing. Do you want to join our band? She was like, yes, great. So we played our first shows with Camille, finishing off the final dates for the Young Fraternity Tour. And it was just utterly life-affirming. It's also just... I think it was really great having that whole year of going on stage and playing Young Fraternity in full and then kind of going, this is this is cool. It's weird, but it's kind of cool. Having a year's break, coming back and just going, no, this is the best thing in the entire mm. world. Just this whole new perspective over it of, of just being so thankful to be on stage, so thankful to be playing to real people, but also like just being so thankful at this record that did so much for us. You know, playing these songs mm. that over the years people have messaged us and gone, your song, like say with you, we walked down, my, my partner and I walked down the aisle to that song or we had our first dance to that song at our wedding. Yeah, you know, um, even, even you know, over the last year I've had this horrible um, uh, situation of a, a fan contacting me saying that his dad was dying. He had a week left to live. He was dying of cancer. Um, could I send one of the songs uh, performed acoustically send a video of me playing it for him over his last week and it was a really lovely thing to do to be able to speak to someone down a camera and and devote something to them in that way but at the same yeah. time it was it was kind of a, a huge reminder of the of the loss and I think we've all experienced to an extent a certain amount of loss over this last 18 months so when we got back on stage and we were playing this album, we were just so thankful for the, everything that we still have. Mm. And um, and I think playing this record was uh, all the way through, rather than being a challenge like it was for those first three shows in 2020, um, it became kind of a spiritual experience. I don't know if we'll ever really forget it or we'll ever really forget the responses to the songs. Um, even the songs that we never thought would get such a wild response, like She Sun, which is such a languid... Uh, Neil Young-esque song, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, which again, I don't think many people expected, but when we play it live, there's kind of this energy to the air, which is um, just a beautiful thing to relish. I think when we first played it in 2020, we were more nervous to be playing it because we'd never really played it on stage before. But now when we played it in 2021, we were just like savoring every second, yeah. just enjoying those moments on stage with each other. When you went back to these songs and played them live and stepped on stage 16 years after they were first released and you played them for the first time did you recognize the people who wrote those songs in the first place yeah and I think that's what I find so unsettling about it is <laughs> you know I'm so much time has passed and I think when you're younger and especially when I was writing this album all of us experienced during a certain period of our youth this feeling of immortality you know like we're indestructible nothing's going to take us down we're going to live forever, never going to get old, <laughs> you know, and that's kind mm. of why I chose Young Fraternity as the title track for this album, because it was like, this is how we feel right now. We feel indestructible. We feel like we're rampaging through everything. And I think now as I, you know, go on stage and I play this song all the way through as in my mid thirties, especially when I sing songs like um, these teenage lips, they speak too fast in songs like, oh yeah, I'm suddenly reminded of my actual age, but not just like... <laughs> who I was then and who I am now but that that space and time and all the events in between and what we've experienced thus far and what I find really weird is not that I don't recognize that kid who wrote all that song all those songs 
it's that I recognize too familiarly that kid who wrote all those songs that there's still a huge part of that kid that's still there with me that kind of untamable passion and wonder for the mm. world and uh, who keeps surging on and making music <laughs> you know even though I'm sort of officially like mature I'm still like no this this stuff matters man like music matters art matters and I, I still remember like how how precocious I was when I was 16 and I pledged to myself that I was never going to work in an office I was never going to put on a suit I was going to do something different and that's not to disparage anyone who works in an office good for you for doing that you know um you you've you have something that I don't have but I knew I couldn't do it and I had to do something else and um you know I was always going to for better or worse be a musician whether it's like busking on the street corner or playing on a stage in front of 50,000 people so yeah I'm still very much that kid he's still there he still says stupid stuff you know <laughs> he still yeah. makes rash decisions but he's also still a precocious little turd, you know, <laughs> who makes good choices. And, uh, you know, that's something I recognise when I listen back to the album. That's the perfect thought to finish our conversation on, I think, Billy. I'm excited to hear <laughs> the new music, which I assume will be out kind of summer next year. Is that kind of when the album? Yeah, get to yeah. I, I, the next single might even be uh, as early as February, January or oh. February. So, um, but the album, yes, yeah, summer, I reckon. Yeah. Nice. Billy, love to talk to you about a truly classic album young fraternity really appreciate your time well you're a legend jim thank you so much the excess manchester long player an iconic album in full with jim salverson excess manchester another classic album boxed off on the excess long player if you want to suggest the classic album that i should cover on this podcast then please get in touch you can do so by leaving a review of the podcast on apple or whatever podcasting app you use or you can find me on Twitter at Mr. Underscore Jim Bob. Find me there. Send me a message. Let me know what album I should be covering and who I should talk to. And I will deliver you very soon another classic album on the XS Long Player. Manchester's indie rock and roll station. XS Manchester.